You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. We continue to worship this morning now by turning in our Bibles to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. So we've continued to go one psalm at a time, as I, as I have had opportunity to do so. We come to Psalm 24 this morning in our pew Bibles that should begin on page 458. We're in the middle of the first book of the Psalter. Psalms 1 through 41 is this first book, and it focuses on the kingship of God and his kingdom of his people. And we'll see that clearly this morning. And as we've noted before, Psalms 20 through 26, many have noted that there's a correlation between uh, aspects of the life of Christ. Psalm 20 to 26 kind of progressed through the life of Christ. We saw Psalm 22, the death of Christ. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoted on the cross from that psalm. Psalm 23, we see something of the resurrection of Christ, this life everlasting. And then we come to Psalm 24, which many have noted depict the resurrection of Christ, or sorry, the ascension of Christ, the ascension of Christ, which we will speak of in time this morning. So let's turn our attention to God's word, this 24th Psalm. So hear now the word of the Lord, Psalm 24, the Psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has established it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. On November 2nd of last year in Houston, Texas, at 10.32 p.m., a ground ball was hit to shortstop. The shortstop for the Atlanta Braves, Dansby Swanson, fielded uh, fielded this ground ball and threw it across the diamond to first baseman Freddie Freeman, getting Yuli Gurriel out on a ground ball and winning the World Series for the best team in the Major League Baseball, in Major League Baseball, the Atlanta Braves. I'm sorry, Cleveland fans. It was a great day to be a Braves fan. First time in my adult life that this happened. The Braves winning the World Series. And then three days later, they, the team returned to Atlanta and did the parade of the century. Estimated 300 to 400,000 people attended this parade. It began in downtown Atlanta, passing screaming and cheering fans, finishing at the Brave Stadium at Truist Park to introduce now to the world the World Series champions, the Atlanta Braves. 
Everyone was ecstatic to see the trophy pass by on a bus. Various teammates took turns holding the trophy as it passed by. Everybody cheered. It was an incredible spectacle to see, even from a distance on TV. You've probably seen many celebrations like this, Super Bowl, World Series, everybody does it. And I do think there are many striking similarities to this kind of celebration and procession with what Psalm 24 is describing, a divine procession, a divine celebration. It's a classic example of a psalm of praise, a psalm of praise looking to God, oriented around God, focusing on him, who he is and what he has done. The king of glory blesses all who come to him. So seek his face. The Lord, the king of glory blesses all who come to him. So seek his face. This is what Psalm 24 is showing us and demonstrating for us. And we'll look at it in three parts. It breaks out very nicely. You'll see the, the, even in your ESV Bible, it's broken out in these three parts. First begins with an announcement, verses one and two. An announcement. And then second, an admittance. Verses three through six. And finally, the arrival, verses seven through 10. The announcement, the admittance, and the arrival. And so this psalm begins with this grand announcement. It's like everybody's waiting for the team, the World Series champions to pass by, and the announcer announces, ladies and gentlemen, your 2021 World Series champions, the Atlanta Braves, being announced in advance. And that's what verses one and two are doing. Ladies and gentlemen, the earth is the Lord's. The creator of heaven and earth is coming. Get ready, be prepared. Who is the one coming in procession? The one who has displayed his glory already in creation. We see the world belongs to God in these verses. Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is the fact of God's ownership of all things. Everything that fills the earth belongs to him. There's nothing that's accepted. Everything we see is God's. And all of time belongs to him as well. Everything is his. Verse two has a description of creation and grounds God's ownership upon God's creation. God created all things from nothing. Uses this poetic language for he has established the earth upon the seas, established it upon the rivers. Maybe using imagery from days two and three of creation to speak of God's powerful creation. He made it and it's his. And this clearly comes to us to remind us that the world is not yours. The world doesn't belong to you. The world is designed, as Ron said in Sunday school this morning, it's designed to show us God's glory, God's grandeur. It's designed to show us the creator I think misunderstanding this truth leads to some of life's greatest frustrations, at least for me. Bad traffic. What do you do? Get frustrated. I didn't know there's going to be traffic on 91 today, but there is. So what do you do? You get frustrated. You say, this isn't how it's supposed to be. I need to get to my destination on time. I think traffic is about me. I think the world is designed for me. When it doesn't fit my needs, I get frustrated. Maybe you awaken in the middle of the night, maybe by children, maybe by aches and pains, maybe something on your mind, maybe a call from somebody. You're awake in the middle of the night and what's your response? Is a response of anger 
and frustration and annoyance. Functionally, we're saying this world should be about me and my needs and what's comfortable for me. I'm saying I don't really believe that the world belongs to God. I don't really believe it's about him and not about me. And it's liberating to see the world the way David describes. It's his. All that I have is his. My time, my energy, my efforts. It's for God's glory. It's not about me. I can use all of the resources and talents given to me to see that God is glorified. Every moment, every day, every traffic jam, every time you wake up in the middle of the night. The earth is the Lord's, but it's not just the earth and all that's on the earth. He, he targets for us something that we often will accept from this general category, and that's ourselves. The end of verse one says, the world is the Lord's and those who dwell therein. He's made the general proposition, the world and everything belongs to God, but you really need to remember that you belong to him too. You really need to remember that humanity is God's. Everyone who dwells on earth belongs to the creator. And this really is striking because we live our lives thinking we are autonomous creatures. It's all about what I want to do and how I want to accomplish it and what I can get in the end. Life is not about you and you are not autonomous. Only God has the right to say who you are and how you are to live. You can't just make up an identity or say, this is who I am, apart from what God says about you. You can't just do whatever you want. You belong to someone, the creator of heaven and earth, the powerful one, the almighty one. The good news is he's no despotic dictator. He's not just making up rules to make your life difficult. He's given us instructions, a user's manual to say, this is how you were designed to work. And of course, in sin, things are difficult. In sin, we we push up against God's law. We don't think it's good and right for us, but this is what we were designed to do, to be. We belong to him and he calls us to live that way. You're not autonomous. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to a creator. And this whole announcement with these first verses, these first two verses point us back to the one who's coming, draws our attention to God. Life's not about you. The world's not about you. It's all pointing to someone else. It's all pointing to the creator who's coming on this procession. He's taking center stage. He's the main act. He's the one who rightly receives all glory. The announcement is made. Putting us in our place, reminding us who we are. And David turns to admittance, verses three through six. If it's true that God exists, how can we come to him? How can we know him? He says in verse three, he's showing us admittance to dwell with God. The question is asked who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? It's archaic language, Old Testament language to describe worship with God, fellowship with God, knowing God. The hill of the Lord is Jerusalem or the temple even in later days. Still today, we talk about the temple mount in Jerusalem. The temple was the highest point. Who shall ascend to come to the temple of God? And who shall stand in his holy place? Again, talking about the holy place where God dwells with his people. It's where God makes himself known, 
where God's gracious deeds are known, where God reminds you, you belong to me and I have graciously given you all that you have. Worshiping God is the height of communion with him. He gives in worship and we respond in song and in praise and in prayer. And our worship now that we experience even this morning is something like this, ascending the hill of the Lord, coming into his presence. But it's only a faint, faint shadow of what all of the Old Testament temple and tabernacle were pointing to. All of what Dave is speaking of here, it's, it's a faint shadow of that final dwelling in the heavenly Jerusalem with God. So he's pointing us to this reality. There's a, a high reality of dwelling with God, worshiping him, knowing him, heavenly bliss will be far greater than anything we can experience now. But this admittance to dwell with God, how does it come? And he says, he lays out in verse four and five, to dwell with God comes by actual perfection. Actual perfection. Verse four, he lays this out. The demands of perfection are identified. What must you have? You must have complete perfection. He says, pure, a pure heart. Pure heart speaking holistically about us as people. We must holistically, every part of us must be pure to come into his presence. We must have perfect living with clean hands, not defiled by any unrighteous deed. We must have right worship and right desires. He said we should not lift up our soul to what is false. Worshiping no false God. Not worshiping ourselves, but only lifting up our soul to the true and living God. And lastly, he says we must have pure words. We would not swear deceitfully. Our words must be pure. So our whole being, our living, our, our worship, our words must all be pure and perfect to come into this dwelling place with God. And the result is demonstrated in verse five. If you have these things, this perfection, you will have blessing from the Lord. You will have the dwelling in his holy place. You will come to his temple. You come to the hill of the Lord. I think for many of us, as we read this, this should be initially depressing. You, listen, you read that list off, and you say, who is sufficient for these things? Who can do this? Who can rightly say, I have pure heart, a pure heart. I have clean hands. I don't lift up my soul to what is true all the time. I, don't, I, I swear deceitfully. I speak untruth. Oh, what hope is there? And of course, this is looking forward to the one who is all of those things. But I love verse six, how, how it, it, it reverses some of the, it relieves some of the tension, I should say. It relieves the tension that, that's building in these verses three, four, and five. And it says something stunning because it says such. All that just came in, in these previous verses. Ascending the hill of the Lord, standing in the holy place, having clean hands not lifting up your soul to what is false, not swearing deceitfully, receiving blessings, the righteousness of God, salvation, all of these things, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. All of these things belong to those who seek him. So there is an actual perfection that leads us to dwell in the hill of the Lord, and that is only Jesus Christ who has accomplished that. But David is pointing us to the reality that what Jesus has done belongs to those who seek him. What Christ has done belongs to those who look for the face of God, who pursue him in faith. This is the grace of God. Righteousness 
is yours. Salvation is yours when you look to the face of God, when you look to his promises, when you look to his Messiah. Now you yourself are not perfect, but you receive righteousness. You now have clean hands and a pure heart before God. Why? Because of nothing other than God's grace. You didn't earn it. You don't stand with your clean hands, but you stand with Christ's clean hands, Christ's pure heart. And this is a glorious reminder of the reality that what it takes to stand before God, standing here in his presence to worship him by faith, takes something extraordinary. It takes the blood of Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness to do that. And it is given to all those who seek him by faith. You have purity to stand upon the hill of the Lord. This righteousness is given as a gift. And now we can live out, propelled by this grace and this gospel, we can now live out a life to seek to have clean hands. We can seek to have a pure heart. It is our desire to do these things. So we pursue these things, not in order to gain admittance any longer, but because we have admittance, now we can live like it. We can live consistent with these realities. So this is a glorious reminder of grace. And it is not us, not of our own doing, but it is a gift of God. And so the profession is, or the, the procession is about to take place. The, the one who is coming in procession has been announced the creator of heaven and earth. Those who can come and dwell with him have been told that they can come by seeking the face of God. And so as the procession now begins to take place, we know it is your guy, your team, your victor, your God who is coming. And we can be like the little kids who are standing up on their tippy toes to look over the, the shoulder of the people in front of them to see their team coming by, who are anxious and, and eager to see that World Series trophy up on the second, second level of the bus being held out for everybody to see with eager expectation. Now, being brought into the family, we come to eagerly await this procession to see what it is. And so we move to the arrival. The arrival, verses 7 through 10, is the, the tenor changes. We have a scene set up for us, a scene of the city guard standing on the walls around the city, announcing the arrival of the king of glory. They say twice, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. They see him off in the distance. They say, get ready, doors, get ready. He's coming in, open them up. Make room, make way for the king of glory. And then in response, we have the people who maybe are on the ground and can't see as well off into the distance. They say, who's the king of glory? Who is this that's coming? And maybe the guards or the royal retinue responds with his attributes twice, once in verse eight and, and verse 10, and we'll come back to that. But we have this glorious scene of pronouncement. The king of glory is here. Who is this king of glory? We have this description of this king of glory here. It's fascinating. This is the only place in all of scripture where the term king of glory is used. And it's used five times, a lot, right in a small amount of space. But it's a wonderful description of God, of our Savior. The king of glory is coming in and describes him a couple different ways here. First, the word Yahweh is used three times. And you get a clue for this in the ESV in verse 8 and verse 10. You see the word the Lord, and it's in the, the, the small caps there. The Lord is this special Hebrew word, Yahweh, to identify the covenant God. It's used three times to describe this king of glory who's coming in. This is the covenant God. This is the one who, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. This is the one who made promises to Abraham, 
that I will be your God and your descendants will be my people. This is the God who's proven himself faithful over and over and over and over when you can count on, when you can depend upon, when you can stake everything upon because he has promised his eternal salvation by his grace alone. The covenant-keeping God is noted three times here. And in verse 8, what's the response to this question? Who is the king of glory? It says, Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. We have imagery here for the first time of war, of battle, of a victorious king who's conquered the enemies, coming back to the city gates, coming back for a celebration. He has conquered everyone on the battlefield. And now we can rejoice because he's strong, he's mighty, he's mighty in battle. His glory has been, de- has been demonstrated in might over his enemies. The victory of the king. What a celebration this would be to see him and his whole army processing back. The king of glory is arriving. Let us celebrate. And then in verse 10, after this, this back and forth is repeated, who, who uh, lift up your heads, O gates, who is this king of glory? The response in verse 10 is different. Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. And this phrase, Lord of hosts, is an incredibly significant term used of God. Lord, we see Yahweh, and some translations, and some will call this, you may have heard this term uh, singing songs before, Yahweh Sabaoth is the Hebrew. Yahweh Sabaoth, he is the king of glory. This word Sabaoth means armies. It means who's mighty. It means he has control over all of the armies. There's some debate. What's it speaking of? Speaking of heavenly armies, angel, angelic army, armies. Yeah, I think we see that in scripture where God directs the angels to go and protect his people. The hosts of heaven come to announce the coming of Jesus Christ. The hosts of heaven come and conquer Israel's enemies. So yes, the heavenly armies, but it also speaks of human armies. He is the Lord of all human might, all human armies. And sometimes he's using Israel to conquer the enemies. Sometimes he's using the enemies to show Israel who is really God. God is God of every army. He is the mighty one. And some translations say the Lord Almighty. He's the Lord of hosts. A God who fights for us. A God who is not passive, but a God who conquers the enemy the Lord of hosts. There is nothing outside of his power. And that's why it began with creation. Everything belongs to him. And so you know he can be victorious in battle. A lot of people ask, what was David thinking about as he wrote this? Why did David write this psalm? What does this mean? Do we have any hints of something historically going on in David's life with this psalm? Commentators like to speculate, but I think it's rather clear that he's speaking here of what we read earlier, 2 Samuel 6, of the ark coming to Jerusalem for the first time. The ark, the presence of God. And if you remember what we read earlier, the ark, the Lord of hosts, who is identified with this ark, processing into God's city, Jerusalem. And so I think that's what David is thinking about here. The Ark of the Covenant coming into Jerusalem, the presence of God into is his dwelling place. And later we see once the temple is built by Solomon, the Ark comes into the temple and God makes his presence known through this incredible, glorious cloud. He is here. This is the procession. 
fulfilled in different times throughout the Old Testament. And so I think David has this in mind, likely, as he looks at this glorious thing. We read about all the celebration and the dancing, and there are some wrinkles that we skipped over in our reading to that, to that whole scene. But it was a celebratory event. The God was coming to rest in his temple after he had conquered the enemies. After he defeated everybody, there was now rest in the land. Now that God was in his city of Jerusalem. But I don't think that's the end point of this psalm. I think the end point of the psalm is showing us a greater divine procession, a greater fulfillment of even the ark coming into the temple. What is the ark coming into the temple showing us? It's showing us the victorious God after defeating the enemies coming to rest. And where do we see that most clearly in the history of mankind? We see this in the risen Christ ascending into heaven and sitting in his father's right hand. I think this is the real reference here for the end of Psalm 24. This is prophesying the, the, the risen Jesus Christ, exalted over all things, who's conquered death, conquered every enemy, conquered everyone, and coming into heaven, processing with all of the glory that is due his name into heaven. And so we see the heavenly angel saying, lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory, the God-man, Jesus Christ is coming in. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death. And he's now ascending to heaven where he rules and reigns forever and ever. Oftentimes the, the, the resurrection or the ascension, excuse me, of Jesus Christ gets short shrift. I even say resurrection instead of saying the ascension, right? It gets short shrift sometimes. But it is an essential element of the gospel. If we don't have Christ reigning and ruling, we have a God who, a savior who is not Sovereign over all things. It connects us to all how, how we dwell with God by grace because of Jesus Christ. He now is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. He is ruling all things for his glory and for our good. And so here we see the exaltation of Christ after the humbling of himself, after Psalm 22, after the cross, the cry of dereliction, after his death and being put in the tomb, the resurrection of Christ and the ascension are necessary for us to see. We confessed this earlier in the Apostles' Creed, did we not? These are the essential elements of the gospel that we're saying together week by week. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and our psalm celebrates that as we are called to celebrate as well. This is a glorious thing. This is a procession of victory and might and power. We're about to sing a song in a few moments. You know, I'm sure well. A Mighty Fortress is Our God by Martin Luther. And this was actually a paraphrase of Psalm 46. He kind of took that and, and went with it as he, as he did. But there's many themes that are similar to Psalm 24 in that. And I want to read verse 2 so we can understand it more clearly as we sing it. Martin Luther wrote and we sing, did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. Looking at the battle, if we fought in our own strength, our striving would be losing. We would lose the battle. We have no strength on our own. And that's exactly what the beginning of our psalm was saying. And what this says, he is the Lord strong and mighty. He is mighty in battle. We have no 
ability to fight ourselves. It goes on to say, we're not the right man on, right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. We would be losing if it wasn't for the right man on God's side, the one who God has chosen, the one God has sent even. Thus ask who that may be. Who is this man? Who is the one of God's own choosing? Christ Jesus. It is he. The Psalms speak of Christ. Psalm 46, Psalm 24 speaks of Christ, the conquering, reigning, and ruling king. And I love this next line that we often misunderstand. Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name. It's not Lord Sabbath. Lord Sabaoth, Lord of hosts. God Almighty, the King of armies, is his name. It is Jesus Christ who's conquered. It is Jesus Christ who the Psalms speak of. It's Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. Does ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Sabaoth, his name. From age to age, the same, and he must win the battle. And indeed, he has won the battle. And that's the whole point of that hymn is Christ has won the battle. We are on his side because of his own working, because of his sovereign grace. We are on the side of the victor. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is Yahweh Sabaoth. And as we read earlier, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone, those who are on the side of the victor and those who he conquers. And so the question for us in this moment is will you celebrate in victory in the procession of Christ's glory? Can you sing Psalm 24 with your heart and say, praise be to God for the victory of Jesus Christ, seeking his face? Or will you acknowledge his glory only after being defeated by his glory? So the two options, will you celebrate in victory in the presence of his glory or will you acknowledge his glory only after being defeated by his glory? Which one is it? Will you try to be the man of clean hands and pure heart on your own? Or will you lay down your arms? Will you say our striving would be losing? Will you seek the face of God as he has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ? He is victorious. He is the one who's conquered death and our sin, who's forgiven us, as we said, manifold times this morning, who's given us his victory and his righteousness. Today is the day of seeking his face. Today is the day of beholding his victory. Today is the day of rejoicing. Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Let us look to him in prayer. Oh, Father, we come thankful that you have given the victory to Jesus Christ. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he has won the battle. He has defeated every enemy, and he has made us dwellers of the city on high. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Oh, Lord, give us clean hands and a pure heart by Jesus Christ. We thank you for his grace. Thank you for his work and his victory. Help us to look to him every day, knowing we are not 
the center of this world, but you and your glory, your son are. May that be the desire of our hearts and the theme of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.